Nehemiah chapter 9. <laughs> Something unusual happened in Nehemiah chapter 8, it was the beginning of a spiritual awakening, which is something you don't see, you know, all over the Old Testament. It happened in connection with the Feast of Trumpets, if you recall, when we were there, uh, we were in chapter 8, and it also took place afterwards in the Feast of Booths. On both occasions, what did they do? Well, the Word of God was read for long periods of time, and they explained what the Word said, and that greatly affected the people. The first reading, on the first time they did it, the first reading, uh, the people were led to tears, according to chapter 8, verse 9. They were weeping for what they heard. And uh, with their history, I'd be weeping too. And sometimes with my history, I'm weeping. Uh, the second day, they discovered the, in the scriptures that, that uh, they should celebrate the Feast of Booths. And they, uh, they did that. They did it exactly as it was laid out, exactly as God said to do it. They did it. And so you can see they're responding positively to the word. They're heeding the word, taking heed to it. And the awakening that started in chapter 8, the spiritual awakening continues in chapter 9. Now, last week in chapter 9, we discovered that the word of God, when rightly taken in, when rightly appropriated, will first of all lead us to repentance. That's in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now on the 24th day of this month, they're still in the seventh month, the sons of Israel assemble with fasting, sackcloth, dirt upon them. Uh, verse 2, they separate uh, from their uh, foreigners and they stand because this is, a, uh, this is Israel uh, observing this. And they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Verse 3, while they're standing in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. For another fourth, they confessed and they worship. And so... They repented. They're, they're beginning the process of repentance because they just heard the word. They're convicted. They're weeping. They're, they're, they're repenting. They're fasting uh, from their sins, uh, over their sins. And then secondly, when the word of God is rightly appropriated, we saw this last time we were together, it should lead to a proper understanding of God. It should lead to a proper understanding of God, verses 4 to 31. Now, the rest of the chapter, chapter 9, is a prayer. The Levites are leading in prayer, and uh, it's, they're rehearsing the history of Israel and talking about how Israel's been disobedient to God. And yet, at the same time, there's some really great theology in chapter 9. And we learn many things about the Lord. And we learned a couple of weeks ago, we learned that, number one, God is creator. In verse 6 of chapter 9, it says, and I'm just reviewing from a couple of weeks ago, that God made the heavens and the earth and all that's in it. Secondly, in verse 8, we find that God is covenant keeper. God had made a covenant with Abraham not only did he make the covenant, verse 8, and then that section says that he actually kept that covenant, so he kept his promises because he's the covenant keeper. Thirdly, in verses 9 to 12, we saw that God is the deliverer because they used, the illustration is used of the Exodus, how God delivered Israel out of Egypt. That, that Exodus, that illustration is used often in the Old Testament because he is, that is his greatest deliverance. And then D, God is the lawgiver, verse 13. Uh, tells us that the Lord uh, gave Israel commandments that were good and just and true. And that's what the scriptures are, good and just and true. He's the lawgiver. Fifthly, God is the provider. Verse 15, talking about when they were in the wilderness. God provided for their hunger. He provided for their thirst all that time in the wilderness. They complained, but he provided for them anyway. And then sixthly, God, we learned that God is good. That was verses 15 to 31. 
verses 15 to 31. And in those verses, <clears throat> we saw that God repeatedly is blessing Israel. He's repeatedly good to Israel. He's constantly good to Israel. And what do they do in return? They show their ingratitude towards him all the time. He's good to them. They're constantly ungrateful to him. Um, but this is God. And it shows us, you know, so many people have a warped view of God in, in the world that you talk to. In churches, they have a warped view of God. And the reason is, is because their view of God is not biblical. If they would see what the scriptures said about God, they would know exactly who he is. Thirdly, we pick it up tonight for the third point. The word rightly appropriated, the word rightly taken in and, and disseminated will lead us to an honest evaluation of our lives and circumstances. It will lead us to an honest evaluation of our lives and circumstances. That's verses 32 to 37. Now, this has been a long prayer, and we discussed this two weeks ago, but they, when, as they pray, they, can, they come to the conclusion of the prayer, verses 32 to 37, and it's as if they're looking at themselves in a mirror, and they're looking at their true selves, and they're making an honest assessment. They're forced to make it an honest assessment of how they really live, of the, because the circumstances are in. Why are they in these circumstances? Because of the way they've lived all this time, and it's not a pretty picture. And that's what happens when you look intently into the, like James says, the perfect law of liberty. Then guess what? You're not going to see a pretty picture. You're going to see your true self. Now, you're not going to be a forgetful hearer like the guy in James 1 if you look in the word of God intently and you see it for what it is. Then you're going to see yourself. I'm going to see myself for what I really am. And it won't always be a pretty picture. Usually not. Now, in verse 32 of Nehemiah 9. References made to the hardship they have endured. Israel has endured hardship. Look at verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the Levites continue this prayer, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship, there's the word, seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people, all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. He says that this hardship they endured was far, was wide-reaching. It affected everybody in Israel. The hardship affected princes and priests and prophets and their ancestors. Not even kings were excused. They were not exempt from the hardship. <clears throat> no one got a free pass. Not only that, but the, the hardship was long in duration. Ever since the 9th century B.C., Listen to this, until the time of Nehemiah, the 5th century B.C., over a span of four centuries, at intermittent times, they suffered hardship. They suffered hardship at the hand of pagan nations like Assyria, like Babylon, and now Persia. All these nations had, de had dominated Israel all this time at different times in the, in the four centuries. You remember Assyria had taken the northern kingdom captive, taken them away. And then Babylon comes into Judah, the southern kingdom, takes them into captivity for 70 years, 70 years. Yeah, that's some serious hardship they had to endure. And this long prayer, and this is interesting, in this long prayer, I believe this is the only petition in the whole prayer. The only petition, it's the only thing they ask for. The request is this, <clears throat> in verse 32, that the Lord might not consider their hardship to be insignificant before him. Or you could say, they could say, do not let all the hardship seem trifling before you, like a trifling matter. I mean, they had been decimated by nations all this time. <clears throat> and yet, they're not asking for very much, only that the Lord will look down upon them and their afflictions, all they're asking for. 
They knew, and if you read this prayer, and we talked about it two weeks ago, you will see again and again references to the fact that God is compassionate, God is gracious. They knew all that. And so they're pleading for mercy. Is what they're, This is a plea for mercy, verses 32 to 37. Don't let all the hardship we've endured over four centuries seem <clears throat> insignificant to you, O Lord. Not make any demands. They don't have any right to make any demands. And then they add this. Look at verses 33 to 35. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them, but they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, they did not serve you or return from their evil deeds. <clears throat> this is a full admission by Israel of God's blamelessness in this whole deal over all these centuries and all the hardship. They're saying, it's not your fault, Lord. <clears throat> You're innocent in all this. You haven't, you're perfectly just to hand us over to our enemies. And they deserved everything they got. They're, all this hardship, they, they, they admit it. They don't deny it. They did act wickedly. <clears throat> they didn't keep his law. They didn't obey what he said. They didn't pay attention to him. They didn't serve him. All the while, the Lord was good to them. Even though he had to administer judgment, they don't do what he says. Now, there are times when God, so you won't misunderstand, when God may be putting you through a trial because he's trying to mature you in the faith, <clears throat> trying to bring you in conformity to the son of the image of Christ, trying to get, develop perseverance in your life, trials. We know that, right? But that's not what's happening in Nehemiah 9. The people have definitely and repeatedly sinned, and they know it, and they're being judged. They've been judged for 400 years intermittently. You know, here's what often happens. We, we often do something or some things that displease the Lord, right? We ignore the warnings of his word. We say, okay, I, I know all that, but, you know, I, warnings that regard certain behaviors unacceptable to him, but we ignore all that. We go our own way. We get involved in something, and then we suffer the consequences, right? We suffer the consequences, and we ask ourselves this question. After all this comes upon us, why is this happening to me? You ever ask yourself that question? Why am I having to endure this, this misery? <laughs> this ministry. Why am I having to endure this ministry? I've asked myself many times. <laughs> no. Why am I having to endure the misery that I'm undergoing? Why is my life such a mess? Why is God punishing me? God's not fair. Don't we say this all the time? And, and, we don't, and we blame, so we blame God for our wrongdoing, and we, we justify ourselves. And surely we're not at fault. It must be God. He's at fault. He's done something to make our lives miserable here. <clears throat> I can tell you one thing. Whatever difficulties you're undergoing in your life, however life may be seem very baffling to you, puzzling to you, we know one thing for sure. God's always just. <coughs> He's just. You know, King David saw that. King David, with the consequences of sin hanging over his head, in Psalm 51, he confesses his sin. He doesn't blame God. He says this in Psalm 51, as he's praying to the Lord, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, David didn't blame God for his sin. He blamed himself. He doesn't charge God with any sin at all. It's not his fault. It's not God's fault. It's David's fault. And then Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 4. And right before he quotes it, you have this, these words. Paul says, let God be true 
and every man a liar, right? God's justified in what he does. He's just. And it goes without saying that God, who is the perfect God of justice, is always just in what he says and what he does. But we get ourselves in a mess, and there's this tendency to blame God. We look at the circumstances and we say, well, what is God doing here? Well, the question is, what am I doing here, you know? The biblical view is in verse 33. Look at verse 33 of chapter 9. He says, however, we've had all this hardship. However, <clears throat> you are just and all that has come upon us. He doesn't blame God at all, the guy who's praying here. In verse 36 and 37, he, he states the present condition of the people of Israel. Look at verse 36. He says, behold, we are slaves today. As, and as to the land which you gave your, our, to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundance produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress. He says, we are slaves today. Remember when we read earlier, they were they'd come out of Egypt in this chapter, and they said they wanted to appoint a guy, a leader, and it says to go back into slavery. They wanted to become slaves again. Why would anybody want to do this? Well, we do this. He says, we're slaves today. Not only that, we're slaves in our own land. You know, the land of milk and honey. The, the land, verse 35 says, so broad and rich. <clears throat> the land that verse 36 says is so bountiful and full of fruit. We're slaves in this land. How, how can it be that they're slaves in the land? Well, it's because... They're ruled by the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is over them. Now, you might think, well, I thought the Persians were good guys, nice guys. Well, they're a lot nicer than the Assyrians, okay? A whole lot nicer than the Babylonians, but still, they're ruling. They're in charge. And guess what they do? They tax people to death. Heavy taxation. So Israelites have to go work the land, their bodies, it says in verse 37, use their bodies to work the land and their cattle to work the land in order to get uh, money to pay the Persian government a ton of tax money. So they're slaves. They're slaves in this, effect, in, in this way. Now, why did God set the Persian government over Israel? Look at verse 37. It's abundant produce of Israel is for the kings whom you have set over us. Notice that God set them over them, Persia over them, because of our sins, it says. That's why. It's because of our sins. That's the reason. But we've sinned, and that's the reason why we're slaves. And that's why, the reason why we've endured hardship, and that's the reason why everything's such a mess. That's what they say here. As a result, they conclude this, so we are in great distress. Verse 37, end of the prayer, we are in great distress. Isn't that where sin leads, both Old Testament and New Testament, into slavery? It, it always does. Romans 6 teaches that <clears throat> prior to our salvation, we were what? We were slaves to sin. Romans 6.19, Paul says, you who are now believers used to... You used to be this way. You used to present your members as slaves to impurity and the lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness. By the way, I'm not describing all of slavery and all of history right now. I'm describing this slavery in Israel right now. That is how it was before our salvation. Slaves to sin, right? To, to unrighteousness. But in chapter Romans 6:19, he says, but now present your members as slaves to what? To righteousness, right? resulting in sanctification. You know, it's not a bad thing to be a slave to Christ. It's not a bad thing. It is a bad thing to be, a, to have a, to be a slave to your own sin, sinful lifestyle, because you don't know the freedom that Christ brings. But when you're a slave to Christ, you do know the freedom that he brings from sin. 
As a Christian, we don't want to be toying around with the idea of returning to that slavery to sin. The Jews were slaves in their own land. Think about that. This land that God gave them, promised them, blessed them with. And now he says, he has to admit, we're slaves in our own land. How tragic. In light of all the goodness that God had shown to them, they're slaves. They're in great distress. They didn't have to be. They chose to be. That's the bottom line. They chose to be. They made their own bed. Now they're lying in it. They brought it upon themselves. That's where a history of turning a deaf ear to God's word leads you. Into slavery, into sin, slavery to sin, that is. And that's how the prayer ends. We're, so we're in distress. You ever heard of a guy in the prayer that way, that way? So we are in great distress. That's it. No, no, strange way to end a prayer, right? No doxology. No sevenfold amen, Bill. <laughs> uh, don't the Levites know how to end a prayer? No, this is a very honest prayer. That's why I like this prayer. It's very honest. And in this prayer, the history of Israel is evaluated and found wanting, right? It's found lacking. They don't measure up. They've blown it. They know it. The Lord told them in plain Hebrew, look, this is how I want you to live. They didn't do it. They rebelled. They rejected his commands, and yet the Lord is still gracious. And so basically, this is a plea for mercy. They've, they've taken on honest inventory. This is where the word of God leads you to do. You take, you have to, you're forced to take an honest inventory of your life and look at yourself and say, hey, this is who I am, this is where I am, this is why I'm here. And to end this prayer by saying we are in great distress is just telling the Lord the truth. He leaves it there. And he says, don't let the hardship we've endured seem so in insignificant to you. We, haven't really have, we really haven't got much to say. Have mercy upon us. You know, when we interact with the word of God in a serious way, it causes us to do some soul searching because the word cuts deeper than a two-edged sword, dividing to the soul, asunder of soul and spirit. And God's word reveals to us our sin and shows us the spiritual condition of our lives. We see it and we confess. And you know what? Often we're forced to say with Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. How often have I said that? That's my spiritual condition before you. And when you read the scriptures, the Lord says, this is your spiritual condition before me. And you say, yeah, it is. What can I say? Have mercy upon me. And, and so that's how it is. But we don't have to remain in that condition. We don't have to remain there. Fourthly, the word of God rightly appropriated will, should lead us to a commitment to that same word. It should lead us to a commitment to obey that word. <clears throat> that's in chapter 9, verse 38, and all of chapter 10. Now, the people don't stop. They don't stop with a prayer of confession. Confessing, that's the end of it, and we'll go our way and do whatever we feel like. They don't do that. They move on into a covenant of commitment with, in chapter 10. A covenant of commitment and agreement to obey the word of God. Look at chapter 9, verse 38. Now, because of all this, after the prayer, because of all our disastrous history and flaunting in the face of God, we've decided, we've, we've, got, we've come to some decisions here. We, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. <coughs> And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. And so they make a, they, they've been brought to see the error of their way as they've read the word, heard it explained. They've, they realize they're in slave condition, and they're ready to do something about it. Sometimes it takes a long time for God to get our attention, right? Knocks over the head several times. Hey, do you get it yet? And then we see it, and we decide finally to commit ourselves. Hey, why don't we live according to the word of God? Now, how do we know this is a commitment to live according to God's word? Look at verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 28. 
It says in chapter 10, 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and all these people and their sons, people with understanding, verse 29, we're joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking ourselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. We are making an agreement, and we'll look at this verse later, to walk in God's law. They're committing themselves to the word. They don't want to be hearers of the word only. They want to be doers of the word. That's taking it to the next level. The word, look at verse 38. We're making an agreement and writing the word translated agreement is related to the word amen. And it means to make a firm commitment, a strong commitment to obey the word of God. There's no escape clause here in case they change their mind. This is a binding agreement, and it's in writing. Verse 38 says, uh, we are making an agreement in writing. You know, it's one thing to make a verbal agreement. You ever made a verbal agreement with someone? And uh, you say, hey, why don't we do this? And then they fall through. It doesn't happen. It's one thing to say, yes, I'll do that job. Or to say, I'll agree to that proposal. It's quite another to sign a binding agreement. Now you're, now you got to pay up. Now you got to get the job done. You've heard the statement. Did you get that in writing? Somebody told me that recently. Did you get that in writing? <laughs> Somebody quotes you a price on a job to get done. And if, if you get it in writing, you can hold that person to that agreement. If you don't, good luck on that. You know, once upon a time, your word was, was as good as any kind of a signature, but not these days. That means nothing. Let, saying let's shake on it, that's not going to cut it. You know, the people that signed the Constitution of the United States, they did so with a with, with thought in mind, hey, I could die. I could die for what I'm signing for here. I could be killed by the enemy. And, uh, but they were committed. Uh, they said in the Constitution, we mutually pledge our lives, our honor, our fortune, our honor to each other. They knew it. And they were committed. They were committed. The people in Nehemiah 9 and 10 are committed, as you can see here. Now, in our day... This idea of commitment is falling on hard times. It's more like the lack of commitment that's what's popular. And that's as true in the local churches anywhere. Lack of commitment. People talk about serving the Lord. Oh, I, I think I'd like to serve the Lord. They think about serving the Lord. They feel that the Lord may be leading them to do this or that, but too often those are just words. They don't come through. I mean, where's the commitment at? There's no follow-through because there's no real commitment. A lot of good intentions, but little discipline to carry through. Ask yourself this question. Is my commitment to Christ and his word as strong as my commitment to my job? Or my bank account? Or my personal interest? Is it that strong? I think a lot of us are going to have to say, let's not ask that question. Would you be willing to put that in writing? If that's how we did business here. Would you put that in writing? Here's the document. You're going to obey the word of God. You're going to be fully committed to it. Write it down. Just put your signature on here. That's what they did. They put their signature on this. Now, let's look at this firm commitment in more in detail. Notice that the first to commit to the practice of the word of God, the first to commit to, the, to practicing the word of God and living it is the leadership. <clears throat> look at chapter 9, verse 38. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of who? Our leaders, our Levites, our priests. And then you go into chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, and it names those people. Here's their names, the guys that signed it. You can see them. And I'll just look at this briefly. 
By the way, you'll be required to memorize these names by next week. But let me just read these briefly. Verse 1 lists the two main representatives of the civic government. Verse 1, Nehemiah, the governor, and Zedekiah. How about that? Governor steps right up. Let's sign the document. Civic leaders. Verses 1 to 8 are names of priests. Look at verse 8. It'll tell you that we're talking about the priests here, the preceding names, verses 1 to 8. These guys sign. There is one glaring omission among the priests, though. Ezra. His name's not here. Did Ezra not want to sign the document? Why is this? His name is not mentioned because his family is represented by his father, verse 2, Sariah. And they, they, he represented him, him and his family. Ezra 7 1 says Ezra was the son of Sariah. He represented Ezra and the family. Verses 9 to 13, look at verse 9. Those are the Levites. And it goes down to 13. They sign. Look at verse 14 through 27, but look at verse 14 in particular. That's the leaders of the people. In other words, they are mainly representative of families who are some kind of lay leadership or something. Now, if you're skimming through this list quickly, and you're reading through this quickly, you may miss the fact that these are leaders here who are both civic and spiritual leaders that sign their names to this important document. Why does that matter? It shows that the leadership's behind this. They're in agreement. Hey, we need to stand up and live for the word of God. Why is that important? Well, if the leadership is not committed to the word of God, why should anybody else even care? Why should they care? If the civic leaders and the spiritual leaders of Israel did not sign the document, basically it loses all its force. What good would the U.S. Constitution have done in the early days if the representatives of the people had refused to sign it? They're not telling the people anything. We don't even believe in ourselves and what we're doing here. Now, Israel's history is filled with leadership who did not think it was very important to Practice the word of God. You'll see it all over the place in the Old Testament. That's all you got to do is read the Old Testament to find that out. A lot of leaders in Israel didn't think it was all that important. When you read the Old Testament, you're going to run into kings, priests, prophets, Levites, who had little regard or maybe no regard for the word of God. One king was cutting the pages with a knife and getting rid of them and throwing them in the fire. That's how they felt, a lot of these people. Even some of these leaders even got in the most heinous forms of idolatry, like passing their kids through the fire. But fortunately, you'll also find in the Old Testament leaders, kings, priests, prophets, Levites, who did care about God's word, but so many leaders did not in the Old Testament. Church history is the same thing, filled with spiritual leaders who said they were spiritual leaders, civic leaders, who said, kings who said they followed God, but didn't really do that. <clears throat> And instead of leading people to Christ, they did just the opposite. They led them away from Christ. They appeared outwardly religious. But inwardly, they were like ravenous wolves who didn't care. So the Lord had to raise up people like John Knox to fill the vacuum, and he did. At this time in history, guys like Nehemiah and Ezra, they are the John Knoxes of that, of that day and age. They're the guys that who are the godly leadership that you can count on, that the people could count on, and the people knew it. Let me tell you this, if the Lord has put you in a position of leadership, spiritual leadership, <clears throat> I would go further than that, even a secular leadership. As a Christian leader, you are a role model automatically. You are uh, someone who should be representing Christ automatically. I know you can't preach the gospel in your job necessarily, <clears throat> but you're representing Christ in your life. 
If you're in a position of spiritual leadership, I'm not talking about pastors only here, and pastors included, yes, but I'm talking about representatives of families, like it says here in this chapter, what a weight of responsibility falls on our shoulders. It really does. I mean, the church is watching. Uh, our kids are watching. The grandkids are watching. So we have to set the example. We have to lead the way to Christ. We have to set, blaze the trail. We have to set down the pattern. We have to be firmly committed to the teachings of the Word of God, as well as the application of the Word of God. And then others will have a pattern to follow, you see. They'll see it. The Apostle Paul and, and, uh, was writing to the Philippian believers, and he said this in Philippians 4.9. Listen to this. Can you say this? <laughs> Can I say this? Philippians 4.9, Paul says to the Philippians, The things that you have learned, and the things that you have received, and the things that you have heard and seen in me, practice these things. A lot, of, a lot of us have to say, well, hey, look, you can practice certain things, but not everything I'm doing over here. You've seen, you've heard, you receive, you learn, practice those things. I've set the example, now follow. And so the leaders are the first to step up, as it should be. Secondly, the people followed. Look at chapter 10, verse 28. The people follow. We just read this a minute ago. It says, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, even children, they're joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. The remaining priests, the remaining Levites, uh, other temple personnel, people who had separated from pagan entanglements. You remember back in Ezra chapter 10? And other chapters, family members, children that could understand, all joined together to follow this binding agreement. Notice the words in verse 29, or verse uh, 28, from and to. They certain group of people had separated from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. That is true sanctification, separation from the world to the word, right? The people followed their leaders. They understood the leadership was committed to the word of God, and they followed them. They, they saw Ezra. They saw his life. They knew he was committed to the study of the law, of, of the word of God. Remember that, Ezra 7.10? The study of the word of God, the practice of it, the, uh, the teaching of it, they knew he was committed to that. They saw, they watched Nehemiah as he was there with them building the wall, as he encouraged them to build the wall in spite of difficulties. He prayed through the difficulties. They saw that. They heard him pray. They were there as he encouraged them, even though he was attacked by enemies and they tried to discourage the people. They observed his practical wisdom. They saw all this. They were there when Ezra and the Levites in chapter 8 read the word of God and they explained what the word of God says. And so all along, Ezra and Nehemiah, these people have seen a consistent testimony of their leadership. These guys are following God. We should follow them. They're following God. They, they prepared the way for us to follow Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1. <clears throat> this is the same type thing that Paul spoke about to the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says this, Our gospel did not, did not come to you, Thessalonians, in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. <clears throat> Listen to this. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You know what kind of men we were. You saw us. 
You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And then the word of God sounded forth from you. So Paul and his co-workers set the example for the Thessalonians. <coughs> the Thessalonians followed that example, and guess what? They became an example for others to follow. That's how it should be. Now, there's more than just human leadership going on here because true spiritual leadership involves following the Holy Spirit. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, Our gospel does not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And that's what it's all about. As the leadership is following Christ, as they are following the Spirit, then the others, a path is being laid down for others to follow. Now, that, that, that doesn't mean that everybody that, you know, you, that everybody's going to automatically take up their cross and follow Jesus that you, that you talk to or you stand in front of or you are an influence over. It doesn't mean that's going to happen. Some people are going to oppose you. Some people are going to resist. Some are going to follow by the wayside, fall by the wayside, but some will follow. Some will follow. You never know how strong your influence for the Lord will be. Only eternity will reveal that. And here in Nehemiah 10, it looks like many people followed, and it was a unified effort to be committed to the Word of God, a serious effort. Now, verse 29, notice the serious nature of the commitment. The serious nature of the commitment, verse 29 says, <clears throat> we're going to join with, our, with their kinsmen, their nobles, and our taking our, we're going to take on ourselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. This is real commitment. This, is, this document is the kind you want to count the cost first before you put your John Henry on it. <clears throat> you want to count the cost first. They did. Let's break this down. <clears throat> they first, notice they placed themselves under a curse and an oath. The curse is closely related to the oath. They take an oath to walk in God's law. And if they break that oath, a curse is going to follow. Now, what the curse is is not stated. I don't know what the curse they, they put themselves under. I have no idea. It doesn't say what it was, unless it's from Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. In that case, <clears throat> the curse are, are things like stoppage of rain, sickness, uh, um, you know, famine, defeat by the enemies, all kinds of punishments like that, if that's the curse we're talking about. Or it could be something else. Whatever it is, they don't want to face it. It's a bad thing. Why are they doing this? Because they're putting themselves in a position to obey the word of God. They're serious about what they're doing here. Very serious, and they're willing to put themselves on the line for this. Now, we read this. Now, we know in our time that we, we, know, we know from theology, from the from New Testament, that Christ uh, died for our sins. We know that he took the wrath of God upon him <clears throat> for our sake on the cross. We know that we're not under any condemnation. We don't need to place ourselves under a curse of any kind. We know that Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, those who are in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know all this. Thank God for that, right? But we, don't take, we shouldn't take the attitude that we can just waltz through life, do whatever we want, and forget about the word of God. That's not how it works. The lesson we can learn from Nehemiah 10 is that walking in God's word is serious business, and we should take it seriously. And the Lord does discipline those who, whom are his own, who go astray like sheep. He does discipline those. All of us. This is a serious uh, commitment. Notice that they are reminded of the example of Moses in verse 29. Do you see his name mentioned in verse 29? It says that um, 
God's law was given through Moses, God's servant. You know, when I thought of that, I thought, it was given through Moses. You remember when that happened back in Exodus? And Moses was called to go up on Mount Sinai. And he got the Ten Commandments and he came down. And what happened? People said, hey, what happened to Moses? He's delayed coming down. Forget about him. But we got our own plan here. Let's make our own God. And they did. They made their own idol. So what have they done? No, no sooner had Moses received the law of God than they broke the law of God. Committed idolatry. Right away. And so I remember as you see this, you remember, oh yeah, those people were not committed to the word of God. But God's servant, Moses, was committed to the word of God. We're reminded of that. Moses reminds us of the absolute necessity to follow the word of God and be committed to it. Moses was hopping mad when that happened because he was defending the word of God. And notice they commit to total obedience to the word. Did you see the word all in verse 29 at the end of it? We're going to observe how many of the commandments of God? All the commandments of God our Lord. They're binding themselves to the total revelation that they have at that time of the word of God. They, look, look at all the verbs that are used. They're going to keep the word. They're going to observe the word. Those are all synonyms for obeying the word. They're going to, uh, they're promising to walk in his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes, all synonyms for the word of God. They keep repeating this over and over again. They're not holding anything back. They want to give total obedience. That's their goal. That's their plan. That's their commitment. It reminded me of the psalmist in Psalm 119, Psalm 119.6. The psalmist says this, I have sworn. You ever prayed this? <clears throat> you ever said this? I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I've sworn to do this. This is serious commitment. The word of God is serious business. It calls for a removal of a lackadaisical attitude toward it. You can't, have, you can't come to the word of God with a lackadaisical attitude. I don't care. Whatever. We don't say whatever when we come to the scripture. It calls for a dogged determination in our hearts as we trust God to help us to obey his word. That's the attitude the Lord wants us to adopt. Finally, notice the specifics of the commitment, the specifics in verses 30 to 39. Now, we just read that their commitment is total, right? Obeying the totality of God's word. But they highlight certain areas that they need to focus on because these areas have always been a problem, problem for them. Let me look at these areas here. Look at verse 30. One area that's been a problem for them is mixed marriages. Verse 30, <clears throat> we pledge that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. That's a great pledge because that was an ongoing problem for them. It happened in Ezra. It happens again in Nehemiah. And for them, it, it's been a big problem and they've got to address the issue. So they put that out there as to highlight that issue. Secondly, the Sabbath, verse 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. What he's saying is this. They're living close to foreigners who are doing business on the Sabbath day. In Israel's economy, they kept the Sabbath day what? Holy, right? And so they would be tempted to buy on the Sabbath day from these guys. And they said, we're not going to do that. We're going to guard against that. And for that matter, every seventh year, when we're supposed to let the land rest and not plow the fields, and when we're supposed to release any slaves on the seventh year, we're going to do it. And they passed that was a concern. They didn't do it. And they, had, they got into trouble over it. They highlighted this problem. Thirdly, provisions for the temple. Provisions for the temple uh, in verses 32 to 39. 
The first thing, that, now in these verses, as you read verses 32 to 39, you're going to see the word, the phrase house of God again and again. The word house of, phrase house of God appears again and again, talking about the temple. And in order to function properly, <clears throat> guess what the temple needed? Funding. Nothing works without money, right? You have to buy stuff to make things work, and that's what they had to do with the temple. So <clears throat> the first thing you do is they impose a temple tax on themselves. Look at verse 32. We also placed ourselves under the obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. They needed money to buy these things for the temple, for worship. And so they imposed a the tax upon themselves. And they said, we'll pay it. Somebody's got to pay for it. We'll pay it. And then they needed firewood. That sounds strange. Why, why is that? Look at verse 34. <clears throat> Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, the people, so that they might bring it to the house of our God according to our fathers' households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. If you're going to obey the law of God and you're in Israel at that time, guess what? You've got to have firewood. Wood for the fire. Seems like a small matter, but very necessary. And so they said, let's get it done. Apparently it wasn't getting done. You know, sometimes it's the small things we don't get done. And then offerings of various kinds. Look at verse 35 to 39. And that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We, all, we will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, the oil to the priest at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. This may not be important to us today, but it was important to them. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gateway, gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. All these things, all these offerings, first fruits, all this, necessary to maintain worship in the temple and to provide for the Levites and to provide for the priests, so they could live and do their job and do their work, all necessary. They wanted to give the Lord's worship <clears throat> the rightful place it deserved, and the word of God puts a high priority on the worship of God. And that's what they did. They, they, they put themselves under the commitment to do all these things, and they highlighted these areas. Let me ask you this. How committed to the word of God are you? Are you so committed to it that you're willing to spend time in it every day? That seems a little strange to say that, but that's where we're having a problem with. Many times in this church, we're having a problem with this. Spending time in the scriptures every day. If not, if you're not doing that, your level of commitment is very weak. And that's your starting point right there. <clears throat> Are you so committed <clears throat> that you actually want to do what it says? That's the next thing. I'm talking to myself, too. Are you so committed that you have specified areas in your life where you have violated the word of God? All of us have areas that we struggle with things. 
We need to pin down those areas and let the scriptures speak to those issues. That's what they did here. They realized, hey, we, got, we want to obey the whole word of God, but we got certain areas we got a problem with. Sabbath, mixed marriages, so on. All these things are important. We'll, we're, we're not going to be seriously committed to the word by accident. It's not going to happen by accident. It's a choice we make. It's going to take daily commitment on our part. It's going to mean total dependence upon the Lord who will help us <clears throat> enable us to do this. Jesus said, <clears throat> if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The message tonight is simple. Take inventory, spiritual inventory of your life as the word touches upon those things in your life. And then make the commitment that you're going to be a man or woman of the word. Let's listen in prayer. Father, we are grateful tonight to hear your word again, to look at your word, to see how it affects our life. We pray that we will take it seriously. This is where we fail, Lord, often. We pray for your grace and help in our lives because we often fail to uphold your word. Help us to see the serious nature of it, the, the, seri the need to seriously commit ourselves to it. We pray that through it, Lord, you'll be glorified in the coming days. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.